welcome and welcome back to God's Proof Podcast here in San Antonio, Texas. I'm your host, Michael Austin Winchester. Today, you're not going to be getting any grand introductions to a new topic out of me. No siree. And that's because we're going to be continuing today with the second part of the evidence for God in cosmology. We've already gone over evidence and explanations for a beginning to the universe, but it's one thing for the universe to begin and an entirely other thing for the universe to be able to sustain life. Us living should make us want to investigate the circumstances around why we're living in the first place, right? Agnostic cosmologist Paul Davies, in his book The Goldilocks Enigma, puts it this way, One of the most significant facts, arguably the most significant fact, about the universe is that we are part of it. So then, how does our universe sustain life? Why is our universe not devoid of life? What are the cosmological conditions that led to us being able to live in the first place? Here's the thing. The laws that govern the livability of our universe are so incredibly precise. They are so precise that the slightest of alterations to them would make life in our universe impossible. And don't take my word for it. Take Stephen Hawking's. In his book, The Grand Design, Stephen Hawking says, The laws of nature form a system that is extremely fine-tuned, and very little in physical law can be altered without destroying the possibility of the development of life as we know it. Were it not for a series of startling coincidences in the precise details of physical law, it seems humans and similar life forms would never have come into being. Oxford philosopher John Leslie, in his book Universes, says it looks as if our universe is spectacularly fine-tuned for life. By this I mean only that it looks as if small changes in this universe's basic features would have made life's evolution impossible. So Stephen Hawking and John Leslie both use the term fine-tuned. You'll see as we go through the evidence that naturalists and theists agree that the universe appears to be fine-tuned for life. But what they do not agree on is the existence of an external fine-tuner. So it goes back to what we left off on last week. Is the force that caused the universe personal or impersonal? Does the cause have the ability to choose to fine-tune the universe, or is it all a series of startling coincidences, as Stephen Hawking put it? In other words, are we going to be Bob Rossing it up in here? Are we calling all of these precise calculations happy little accidents? Now, in today's evidence, we're going to be talking about ratios and probabilities quite a bit. And with conversations about ratios and probabilities comes incredibly large numbers. Numbers so large that in conversation, we reduce them to exponents. And in our language, we say 10 to the whatever power. We'll say 40, 10 to the 40th power. But I want to make sure that you don't reduce the largeness of these numbers as a consequence of reducing them in our language. So when I say 10 to the 40th power, and you catch yourself thinking, oh, that's not that big. It didn't take him long to say that number. I'd encourage you to get out a piece of paper and write out the number one, and then add 40 zeros to it. Then after your hand finishes cramping up, I give you permission to return to the podcast. All right, let's go ahead and get into some evidence. So first, I want to take you back to your middle school and high school chemistry and physics classes. You might remember the periodic table of chemical elements. You may even remember that song we sang to remember them. 
There's hydrogen and helium, lithium, beryllium, right? You may remember that. Well, atoms, and no, I'm not talking about your friend Adam. Atoms, A-T-O-M-S, make those elements those elements. They are unique and distinguishing features of those elements. You can actually see an illustration of an atom just to the right of the God's Proof title in the podcast art. Okay, so why does all this matter? Well, you'll also remember atoms have these things called protons and electrons. Protons are positively charged and electrons are negatively charged. It's all coming back now, right? Well, those protons and electrons have to be precisely balanced, both in how many there are of them and how much there are of them. If the precise balance between the protons and electrons changed by more than 1 in 10 to the 37th power, the universe we know wouldn't exist. Similarly, if the expansion rate of the universe, we talked about how the universe is expanding from a beginning last week. Well, if the expansion rate changed by more than 1 in 10 to the 37th power, every planet in the universe would be uninhabitable to life. According to astrophysicist Hugh Ross in his book Creator in the Cosmos, 1 in 10 to the 37th power is about the same chances you'd have if you filled a billion continents the size of North America with dimes and then stacked them all to the moon. And if you marked just one of the dimes and had someone blindfolded pick a dime, the odds that person picks the right dime is about 1 in 10 to the 37th power. That's crazy, right? If the expansion rate or the proton and electron balance changed by that small of an amount, we wouldn't have life. Let's talk about the force of gravity. It actually dictates that expansion rate we just talked about and so much more. Theoretical physicist Leonard Susskind, author of The Cosmic Landscape, says, The large-scale properties of the universe, its size, how fast it grows, the existence of galaxies, stars, and planets— are mainly governed by the force of gravity. You may also remember from physics class in high school, the four forces that govern all of physics, strong force, electromagnetic force, weak force, and gravity. Well, gravity is actually the weakest of those four forces, and it's primarily responsible for all those things Susskind just mentioned in our universe. He continues, the properties of gravity, especially its strength, could easily have been different. In fact, it is an unexplained miracle that gravity is as weak as it is. So this is wild. If the balance between electromagnetic force and gravity was changed by more than 1 in 10 to the 40th power, again, the universe wouldn't exist. Philosopher Robin Collins puts it this way. If we stretched a measuring tape across the entire known universe and then made one mark on the measuring tape, and we'll say that one mark represents the correct amount of gravitational force to create our universe, well, if we move that mark by more than an inch in either direction from its location on the tape measure, our universe wouldn't exist. You may also be familiar with mass density from your physics classes in school. It's how much there is of a substance in relation to the space it occupies. Well, again, we see that the mass density of the universe is precisely calculated to sustain life. If it changed by more than 1 in 10 to the 59th power, every planet in our universe would be uninhabitable. 
There's a work by theologian John Jefferson Davis that compares this tiny change to trying to fire a bullet into a one-inch target on the other side of our universe. One of my best friends is like a wizard when it comes to gambling and casino games. He'll talk your ear off about how slot machines are the worst games to play because you only have, I think it's like a one in seven chance of actually winning your money back. So imagine a slot machine where you have a one in 10 to the 59th power chance at winning anything. Buddy, I'm telling you, there ain't enough money in the world to win at that. All right, before we transition into talking about our galaxy, I want to bring back up that periodic table of elements right quick. We briefly talked last week about how hydrogen and helium are the two most abundant elements in our universe. And physicists say that's because they're the earliest elements in our universe. So other elements essential to life, like, I don't know, oxygen, it's pretty nice breathing, right? Carbon, about 12% of our bodies are carbon. Well, these elements were made later. However, as Leonard Susskind points out, small changes in the laws of electricity and nuclear physics could have prevented the formation of carbon in the first place. In other words, small changes to the laws of physics would have stopped the formation of elements that were required for life. Michio Kaku, a theoretical physicist and author of Parallel Worlds, summed it up this way. It's shocking to find how many of the familiar constants of the universe lie within a very narrow band that makes life possible. If a single one of these accidents were altered, stars would never form. The universe would fly apart. DNA would not exist. Life as we know it would be impossible. Earth would flip over or freeze, and so on. Yes, Mr. Kaku, and so on indeed. So let's go ahead and transition and talk about the Milky Way. Great candy bar, even better galaxy. You'll understand what I mean by that in just a minute, because our galaxy is number one. It was his hat, Mr. Krabs. He was number one. First off, our galaxy is in the shape of a spiral. And as it turns out, that's incredibly important for life. About 95% of the other observable galaxies in our universe have an irregular shape. According to Hugh Ross, the problem with large irregular galaxies is that they spew out life-destroying radiation and material. Meanwhile, other small irregular galaxies have insufficient quantities of the heavy elements essential for life. So the spiral shape to our galaxy makes life possible. Where the Milky Way is placed in our universe is also incredibly important. It's just far enough from other large galaxies to prevent their force of gravity interfering with ours. The Milky Way is also just the right size for life to happen. It's large enough to prevent collisions with other galaxies, but it's also small and compact enough for stars to form inside of it in the first place. Our sun and solar system is also an important factor to consider because if it was closer to the center of the Milky Way galaxy, the radiation from the core of the Milky Way would make life impossible. And if it were farther away from the center, there wouldn't be enough heavy elements to make planets that we could live on. Outside of its position within the Milky Way, the color of our sun allows for photosynthesis, which is obviously important for vegetation. I mean, we need plants to live, right? The sun is also hot enough for carbon-based life forms like humans to exist. 
and there's only one sun in our solar system, which is important because solar systems with multiple stars have problems with gravity and heat. The sun is also perfectly aged for life on Earth. Our sun is in the middle of its life cycle. If it was significantly older or younger, its light would be too unstable for life. Its size is also perfect. If it was more massive than it is, it would burn too inconsistently. If it was less massive, it would create problems with gravity. In that case, Earth would have to be closer to the sun to stay in orbit, and that would impact our climate, tides, and the rotation of Earth. The planets surrounding Earth also help in making life possible on Earth. Jupiter is often referred to as the vacuum cleaner of our solar system. It's so large that it can eat up any asteroid or comet that ventures near it, which protects us from harmful materials in space and makes Earth more habitable. And let's not leave the fine-tuning of Earth out of this discussion either. Earth exists in what's referred to as a habitable zone, which is a perfect distance or range from a star where water can exist on the surface of the planet. Habitable zones are also called Goldilocks zones, where conditions are just right. It's not too hot and not too cold for life to exist. If we were slightly farther away, or even slightly closer to the sun, our water cycle wouldn't stand a chance, and our temperatures would be increasingly more extreme. You may also remember this from middle school science class. Earth's tilt in our orbit and its tilt of our axis is perfect. Small changes to either of these would make our seasons and weather too extreme. How fast our Earth rotates is also incredibly important. If it was slower, our days would be too hot and our nights would be too cold to allow life. If it was faster, the wind would be too extreme. Earth's gravity is also precise enough to keep our atmosphere in good shape for life. If Earth's gravity was stronger, there would be too much methane and ammonia in the atmosphere. If it was weaker, we wouldn't be able to keep enough water in our atmosphere. We could also look at the crust of Earth and see how precise it is to allow life. If our crust was thicker, we wouldn't have enough oxygen in our atmosphere. If it was thinner, there would be crazy amount of volcanic activity and other natural disasters from unstable and shifting tectonic plates. Finally, our Earth has the perfect moon for life to exist on Earth. It's a large moon, and it's the perfect size to keep Earth's orbit and rotation at the correct degree and speed for our climate we experience. According to Mr. Kaku, computer programs show that without a large moon, about a third the size of Earth, Earth's axis might have shifted by as much as 90 degrees. And we just talked about how small shifts to the axis would mean that life on Earth as we know it would be impossible. There is so much more evidence for fine tuning, and I would encourage you to dive into this further because it is an absolute miracle that we're here right now. After the break, we're gonna be looking at the explanations given by naturalists as well as by theists to explain these miracles of precision, and you're not gonna to wanna to miss it. All that and more coming up. This podcast is sponsored by God the Father. He loves you. He's for you. He created you. He's the Father.
right, we are back. So we'll start off again looking at the explanations for the fine-tuning we see in our universe from naturalists. And we do have to have an explanation for fine-tuning, because without our precise laws governing our universe, according to cosmologist Paul Davies, the universe would either be full of chaos or boring and uneventful simplicity. So what are the naturalist explanations for this fine-tuning? Well, one explanation is that all this fine-tuning isn't actually required in the first place. This explanation says that life could have come from less fine-tuned environments. Environments similar to the boring and uneventfully simple universes we just mentioned. Well, what's the problem with this explanation? The problem is we have to redefine what life is in order to fit this narrative. We have to push the goalposts back, right? The forms of life that this explanation seeks to call life don't ingest food, metabolize energy, adapt to their environments, or reproduce. All of these are key characteristics that distinguish the living from inorganic matter. And this explanation redefines life to something outside of these basic and fundamental characteristics. It pushes back the standard of what life is. Another explanation is that the fine-tuning that we observe is just simply the result of chance. We're just extremely lucky. I want you to think back to all of the evidence that we just talked about. Think back to the precision of the universe, the slot machine example, the stacking dimes, the measuring tape, the bullet example, the characteristics of our galaxy, our solar system, and our Earth. This explanation ignores all of that. It ignores the improbability of it all. So while possible, if you even want to call it that, it's most certainly not reasonable. Leaving this evidence up to chance and labeling everything as just a coincidence also denies the purpose of any investigation we want to make about anything ever in all of history. Imagine if we said that about anything we've ever discovered in the realm of science. That apple falling down from the tree that Isaac Newton saw showing the effects of gravity. And he's just like, nah, nah, that's just luck. It could have easily fallen upward. It could have easily risen instead, right? 50-50 chance. I guess we'll never know. I mean, we'd never have confidence in our knowledge of anything. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of when you're playing a game of pickup basketball and the other team doesn't know how good you are. Maybe it's the first game and they're underestimating you. And so you knock down a shot or two and the guy guarding you just looks you dead in the face and says, luck, <laughs> right? Like then, then you keep draining shot after shot. And eventually they stop saying luck after you score because my jumper is cash money, baby. Now, I don't play a lot of defense, but you better guard me past that three-point line. I'll tell you that much. At some point, it becomes skill. At some point, it's not the result of chance, and we have to provide reasonable explanations for our observation. Another explanation given is that our universe is the only kind of universe that could have ever come into existence because the laws of physics don't allow any other kind of universe. However, there is no evidence of that whatsoever. There's absolutely no reason to believe the laws governing our nature couldn't have been different. And even if they couldn't have been different, this explanation still fails to explain the fine-tuning evidence we went over in the Milky Way, our sun and solar system, and our Earth. So this explanation is not supported by the evidence in the first place. And even if it was, it doesn't explain all the evidence we have. And therefore, it is not 
reasonable. Some naturalists say we see fine-tuning because any universe that humans live in would have to have these precise characteristics in the first place in order for us to see them. So it shouldn't be a surprise to us to see these characteristics. On the surface, this seems like a good point. But do you see the problem with this explanation, though? It mixes up observation and explanation. So yes, I'll concede. In this scenario, we would absolutely see precise conditions leading to us living if we're living. But that is not an explanation for the improbability of precision required for the universe to exist. It's just disregarding the improbability of precision and saying it should be expected. This explanation is lacking an explanation, which makes it not an explanation in the first place. It's just a statement that admits we see fine-tuning without adding any meaningful contribution as to whether it came from happy accidents or a fine-tuner. All right, this next explanation is going to excite all the people who love Marvel movies. I married into a Marvel movies family, so I've been forced to watch all of them. But I was also crying at Endgame, so forced might be a strong word. Let's talk about multiverse theories. You'll remember last episode, we talked about quantum vacuums. I compared them to a popcorn bag that was expanding faster than the popcorn it was popping out. The popcorn bag was the vacuum, and the popcorn is seen as multiple individual universes within it. We talked about why this wasn't a reasonable explanation last week, so if you haven't heard that episode, go check it out. Multiverse theory relies on some sort of cause outside of our universe, like a quantum vacuum, that's able to create a large number of universes with their own sets of physical laws guiding them. Kaku says, in this multiverse of universes, most universes are dead. The proton is not stable, atoms never condense, DNA never forms, the universe collapses prematurely or freezes almost immediately. But in our universe, a series of cosmic accidents has happened, not necessarily because of the hand of God, but because of the law of averages. So we see here that multiverse theory attempts to provide an explanation for the improbability of the precision and fine-tuning we see by increasing the chances of creating a universe like ours. So what's the problem with this explanation then? It seems to account for the many improbabilities, right? Well, many physicists and cosmologists don't even elevate the multiverse to theory status. They say it's an intriguing idea, but there is no evidence for it and no way to test it because again, our universe is a closed system. You can't access the multiverse to corroborate the idea. It's a cheap way out. So these physicists say the multiverse idea is really more philosophy than it is science. Without evidence or the ability to test the idea, there is not any acceptance of it from a scientific standpoint. Here's another problem. The multiverse generator, the quantum vacuum, whatever you want to call it, would have to still be calibrated to make a universe that allows life to be possible. So those who make multiverse claims still have to explain fine-tuning, just at a different level than the rest of us. And then we can bring back all of the problems with quantum vacuums or eternal universe generators we talked about last episode that require explanations for themselves. As we go deeper and deeper into the explanation, we see how much it actually lacks. 
But the idea is cool for Marvel movies, I'll give it that. There is, however, another explanation for the fine-tuning we see in our universe. We looked at physical necessity, blind luck, an idea about observation, multiverse theories, but the one explanation that's left on the table reasonably accounts for the fine-tuning, and it's the result of an intentional fine-tuner. All this fine-tuning is the product of design. We talked about Arno Penzias last episode. He was one of the astronomers that discovered residual background radiation from the beginning of the universe using their large radio antenna. He's quoted as saying, Astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing, one with the very delicate balance needed to provide exactly the conditions required to permit life, and one which has an underlying, one might say supernatural, plan. Here's the thing. If none of the other explanations are reasonable, we have to stay open to the idea of an intentional designer. So let's recap where we're at in our investigation into who or what created our universe. Last week, we established that whoever or whatever caused our universe is powerful enough to cause it in the first place, is outside of our universe, is not bound by space, time, or matter, and is eternal. Well, we also need to add another characteristic. Whoever or whatever caused our universe is intentional enough to create a universe fine-tuned for life to live. I want to leave you all with a thought that I've been discussing with my wife in doing research for this episode. I've quoted theoretical physicist Michio Kaku a few times in this episode, and it's not just because his name is fun to say, which it is. Strong name, sir. Props. But I've quoted him because he's a well-respected theoretical physicist in his field. He's the co-founder of string field theory. You might have heard of string theory from the TV show The Big Bang Theory. Sheldon is a string theorist in that show. Well, Kaku co-founded string field theory. He's championed in his field for it by naturalists, right? Well, Kaku, the more he studied and worked in his field, believes in God. Now, he doesn't believe in God the way Christians do, but he believes in an intelligence at the center of all of this. I'll be talking about the evidence for the Christian worldview in the coming seasons, but believing in the reasonability of God in the first place is a big and important step for non-believers. In an interview he did, he says, I have concluded that we are in a world made by rules created by an intelligence. To me, it is clear that we exist in a plan which is governed by rules that were created, shaped by a universal intelligence, and not by chance. There is a belief among naturalists, and I know this because I once was one, that to believe in God, you have to leave your brain at the door. And yet, the more you dig into the evidence, the more you see God's hands in it. I talked about how experts aren't on the jury stand last week because the more they dig into topics they're an expert on, the more weight their topic carries in their decision-making. They basically have tunnel vision. Well, it amazes me in researching for this that the deeper that physicists, experts in their field, get into evidence for our existence, the more they start to turn towards the reasonability of God. And I don't want to misrepresent the community and say that all of them do this. But the point is that you don't have to leave your brain at the door to believe in God. I hope that's something everyone can take away from this podcast. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind.
It would be hard to love him with all of our minds if we left our brains at the door, right? Okay, I'm out of note cards for this week. As always, subscribe and rate this podcast five stars. And in your review, go ahead and throw in a question for a chance to have it answered in a coming episode. I also want to point you again to Jay Warner Wallace's God's Crime Scene book. It is a great resource that covers a lot of the topics we're going over this season, and it's less than $20 on Amazon at the time of this recording, so it's well worth it for the knowledge you'll gain. Mr. Wallace used to be a naturalist just like myself and other Christians who enjoyed diving into the evidence God gave us. I've posted a link to that book in the show notes. Until next time, this has been God's Proof Podcast.